Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 74, the one about brand voices, the rise of Canva, cosy cosy travel consolidators and death on the Nile. Let's get on with the show. Hello, hello, and welcome to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are back with more news, tech content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. Joining me, a man on a mission to keep marketing simple, the voice of the Marketing and Finance Podcast, and the author of Cats, Mats, and Marketing Plans, I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. No, thank you so much. And of course, I'm joined by a man who's also on a mission, this time to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. Please welcome Monsieur Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you very much, Roger. And thank you to you, viewers and listeners, for joining us for this episode 74. Can I just say, the number 70-something is huge, right? <laughs> Absolutely. It, it, it has a resonance about it, doesn't it? 70, 74. Soon to be 75. <laughs> Absolutely. And actually, I was looking back at some of the early episodes, and we are going to be celebrating our two years of production in this summer, which is also quite an achievement. Yeah, two years. I mean, let's face it. We've said this before, because of the pandemic, time has simultaneously flown by, but also dragged at a snail's pace. So on the one hand, I think, how have we managed to be doing this for two years? But then on the other side of the coin, it actually feels like we've been doing it for 10. No, absolutely. And listen, one thing that we've said before, you and I, Roger, is what makes a big difference to get the the messages from the audience on, on the socials in particular and sometime on YouTube. So let me also say thank you to the thank you messages. To start, start with Sean Roberts from Civica. She said uh, recently, thanks for the shout out by the article. Really liked your podcast. I will start listening to them. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, and Davis and Company, on behalf of Alison Davis, who was my content shout-out last week, also said thanks so much for including Davis and Company in this shout-out for the podcast. We also got a shout-out, or a thank you, should I say, from Vizi.fm, my tech selection. Thank you for the kind mention and review, Pascal Fondini. We appreciate it, and welcome your feedback. And we've had likes and thank yous from loads of people on the socials as well, particularly on LinkedIn. So we've had Hannah Campbell, Michelle MacArthur Morgan, Debbie Ekins, Ian Farah, Steve McCormick, Justin Messenger, Samuel, Samuel Bolton, Ian Quayle, Darren Berry, CG Hatton, Stephen Breakwell, Ryan Hanley and Andrew Charlton. Thank you so much for following the show. Now, absolutely. We take great pleasure in preparing for each episode. We enjoy recording them, but to know that it has some resonance with all of you makes a big, big difference. Talking of preparation, it was your turn to select the film for our film marketing segment. What have you got for us this week? Well, Pascal, we're actually going to be talking about a recent film. In fact, it's only been out for a couple of weeks. We're going to be talking about Death on the Nile, the latest adaptation of one of Agatha Christie's most famous detective mysteries with uh, Hercule Poirot. And wow, um, what a film to talk about. Not only does it look gorgeous, but as you would expect, because it was produced during the pandemic, there is a massive story going on in the background to this movie as well. And we always choose movies and the film marketing campaign uh, to be a source of inspiration and, and new ideas for all of us content creators. And we will also talk about the social media campaign that is just absolutely stunning and also great examples where you could do with your own efforts. But before we do so, we need to go through a few more segments to begin with in the news. 
Argos and Pinterest launched the Argos Mood Hotel, consisting of five different rooms, each designed to be like a mood board on Pinterest brought to life in a physical space. According to research from Bazaar Voice, 40% of shoppers say they will not make a purchase if there are no user-generated content on the brand or retailer's product page. Walmart is rolling out the Snap Scan Shop lens in partnership with Snapchat. Users will be able to scan food items with a smartphone camera and get a list of 10 recipes that include those items. Podcast host Anchor's creator interface is now available in 35 different languages. A shrewd move according to industry experts as podcasting is growing faster in non-English languages. Twitter is introducing three types of adverts, interactive text ads, product explorer ads to present your products in 3D and collection ads displaying a large image with up to five smaller thumbnails. Wow, Meta, the artist from Inonda Facebook, has announced its new conference called Conversations, taking place on the 19th of May 2022. This is Meta's first ever event on the future of customer communication and business messaging. On April Fool's Day, Marmite opened an eBay account called the Pre-Hated Marmite Store. For £1, you could buy jars that had been opened, tried and discarded in disgust. <laughs> so good. And finally, to mark the 60th anniversary of the James Bond film franchise, Aeon Productions have announced that all 25 films will be available on Amazon Prime Video and screened in stunning 4K throughout the year on View and Audience Cinemas in the UK. Fantastic. Wow. Well, very quickly, not one I've chosen to discuss, but that's quite something. I mean, the streaming side, I'm nonplussed about because I've got all the movies on DVD and Blu-ray. But to watch maybe some of the classics in 4K, that's very tempting. Yeah, I mean, I was, I'm sitting here thinking which ones. I mean, On Her Majesty's Secret Service would be an absolute essential. But there's there's one film from each of the actors, isn't that that I probably have to see? Goldfinger, uh, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, uh, For Your Eyes Only or Spy Love Me for Roger Moore, um, mm. Golden Eye for Pierce Brosnan. Um, either of the two um, uh, Timothy Dalton movies, I, I like them all and of course any any of the daniel craig movies so actually i'll probably end up going to about uh, about half of them pascal maybe there should be some form of competition report keep you know, the receipts and maybe send that back to aeon or audion and take part in the competition so uh, as ever marmite always do their marketing so so well but i want to take you back to the very first news item roger argos and pinterest partnering up and argos actually creating something very, very new to them because, I mean, we all know about the Argos experience. I'm sure there's an equivalent around the world where you see an item online, you, you, you order the item, it's either delivered to your house or you pick it up from essentially uh, the back of the warehouse. There, there was none of that experience and they seem to be changing their tact there. Yeah, this is interesting. I'm not actually quite sure what it is. Is it an actual real hotel with five real rooms or is it all some sort of metaverse uh, no, no. On this occasion, Roger, I can reassure you, it is a real uh, hotel. And what they've done, essentially, they've um, very much like you would expect people like IKEA and many others to do. They've created rooms using items you can buy from Argos. And those can be visited um, in the hotel. You can use their 360 camera. And, of course, you can go on Pinterest. I think that... I read it, I'm reading more and more and more now about customer service. And I think that during the pandemic, customer services has suffered 
quite badly, hasn't it? A lot of big companies and and the airlines seem to be doing particularly badly have obviously let a lot of people go because demand had fallen. And now things are picking back up again. They're just struggling to provide decent service. And I think companies are waking up to the fact that even in this digital world where, yes, we can do things online and, yes, we we are developing different uh, experiences, people still want to have good customer service and sometimes face-to-face, and, and maybe this is what's happening here. I think it's also potentially, we, we should maybe ask the people working at Argos, is it an attempt to capture the uh, the attention and the wallets of the younger generation? Would be online. They'll be using Pinterest more. Um, their argument saying that we are such a content or item rich organization, it can be hard for customers to know what we can uh, store or or what we can do with the items. Let us help you and imagine your home redesigned using the Argos items. And again, maybe the other thing that's happening in this world again, where we're constantly bombarded with messages we might not actually be able to decide what we want to do. There are so many choices. Um, you know, is it blue? Is it black? Is it yellow? Is it green? Is it leather? Is it um, suede? Whatever. And I think sometimes people need these prompts, don't they, to think, you know what, I think I will go with leather. That's And that maybe that's what they're trying to do here is admitting that the choice that they offer is quite vast and they're actually giving people a narrower view to help them make a decision. Well, that gave me a good segue to the next one, so Walmart and Snapchat. So it's interesting, it's all about partnership. My first reaction was, oh, why Snapchat and not the others? You know, that, that was what I was thinking of. And this idea of, once again, you could scan food items that could be in your fridge or as you are going through the aisles of any of the Walmart kind of uh, brands and get recipes. So again, this idea of uh, customer service, but done virtually. Yeah, but is there a bit of upselling going on here? So you pick up a, a um, packet of rice off the um, thing and Snapchat gives you 10 recipes, including rice, and that includes another 50 items that you're going to have to buy from the store. So you end up going and buying stuff that you didn't intend to buy in the first place. That's Maybe. Could, that could be. Um, ideally, if you're at home and you, you don't want to go back to the store, the recipes would be sufficient. For me, the, my reflection was, you know, once again, why choose Snapchat and mm-hmm. not any of the others? Why not, for example, choose something like Google Lens? It's just fascinating to, to kind of reflect on uh, wishing to be a fly on the wall during that, that, that meeting because it's not the most popular uh, platform, Snapchat, by any stretch. They've had a few attempts, you know, as you remember, by the, the lenses as well, the actual glasses to wear and have a few of the things. And, and maybe with respect, Snapchat maybe was the only one that said yes to a partnership with Walmart. Yeah, possibly. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? This is the first time I've, I've actually thought of Snapchat for a long time. Can you remember when Gary V was going on about Snapchat is the biggest thing ever and every single company in the entire world should spend millions on marketing through Snapchat because if you don't, you'll miss out and you'll fail and collapse and everything like that. And that never, that never happened, did it? In fact, now TikTok and arguably Instagram all of whom have probably copied some of the things that uh, Snapchat pioneered are all bigger than Snapchat. I just don't hear about Snapchat anymore until you came up with this uh, news item. Mm. And and maybe, you know, what what they're looking is um, going for something that has more of a narrow cast opposed to a broadcast, the likes of Instagram and all the others. 
and it may be that they will do all the deals with the other platform. Talking about platforms, last news I want to go with you is Meta announcing the news conf- uh, new conference sorry, called Conversations. Now, here's a bit of the background intel from Natalie Emeni as well, who looked into this. Now, every year, Facebook, now called Meta, would run a conference called F8, and literally, Mark Zuckerberg would open and close it, and in between, you'd have the different product lead, Instagram, WhatsApp, um, you know, Oculus, they were all there, giving you an idea of their plan for the next year. And that was really helpful, because you could start to plan and maneuver your own social media strategies. We've just heard a few days ago that F8 has been cancelled again, that's three years in a row, but instead they're going for this conversations conference, which is all about business messaging. So the conference will be only about WhatsApp, Messenger, and, and Instagram. And I wonder whether this is a hint about where Meta is going to put the effort, but also whether we're going to see better and more interesting add-on to you know the very popular business messaging platforms. Is this actually a conference for everybody? So I could go, you could go, and we could learn about these business messaging apps, or is this purely for meta people? That's for the public. So I will put in in the show notes the um, the link to register. It's an online conference, I, I would suspect. And what they are usually doing with those conferences, if they're taking a hint from F8, you'll have three audiences. You have the developers, who can essentially use the API or those platforms to create very interesting products. You have the marketers, you know, like you and I, and you've got the agencies who want to offer the service of running campaigns. And they tend to be very, very informative. Like literally, you're told in advance, in six months' time, this will happen on, business, on Facebook Messenger. Get yourselves and your clients ready. So, yeah, it's one that I would definitely recommend people attend. But I'm just fascinated by the fact that they cancelled the big one and I've gone for one which is as more of a focus on business messaging. Yeah, that's very interesting. As as you say, it probably points a clear direction as to what they're going to be focusing on. Um, and again, I suppose you know if that's if if this is important to your business and they do effectively reveal so much info about what's coming up over the next year or so, then it will help with your strategic planning. Okay, I tell you what. Um, let's also let people know that if you are attending or running a marketing kind of led conference let us know we'll make sure to give you a little shout out during the news sections talking of shout out living messages we announced last week that we now have an account on speakpipe allowing our viewers and listeners to leave voice messages that can be added to this show i'm glad to say that we had about 145 people who have liked and viewed the message but that's not enough everyone please make sure to record your messages and send them to Roger and I. Right, let's slow things down if you don't mind and move on to the content spotlights. So Roger, what wonders from the interweb have you discovered this week? Okay, Pascal, this is another article and uh, to follow a trend for me recently, it's another relatively short article and the heading is It's Time for Brands to Find Their Voice Again. Three ways to rediscover a critical brand 
asset. And this is on a website called Muse by Clio, which I have to say I've not come across before. And the author is John Long. Now, this, this is something that I've been interested in for a long, long time, going back through my entire career, is this idea of brand voice. And, and brand voice, as you know, it's the sort of words that you use in your written communications. It's the words that you use in your video and audio communication. And it, it's almost like your personality. You know, it's not, we're not talking about the colors or the logo here. We're talking about how you come across. You know, do you come across as tetchy? Do you come across as sarcastic? Do you come across as, you know, big buddies and that sort of thing? And, and John starts basically by saying, do you know what? So many brands now just sound exactly the same. And if you actually ask them, to reveal what they say their brand personalities are made of, they'll come up with just bland terminology like, well, we try to be friendly, optimistic, clear, helpful, and genuine. Now, if you actually think about it, would anybody not want to be friendly, optimistic, clear, helpful, and genuine? It doesn't set you apart. It doesn't make you stand out. And he's, he's sort of trying to make us think that maybe over the last two years, maybe when people have upped the amount of communication they've been doing, especially written communication, this mediocrity or this sameness has taken root even more. And more and more brands just sound and feel exactly the same. And it gives a few examples of brands, admittedly a US brands, which I've not heard of, which actually do have a completely different style and a completely different tone of voice. And use an example of a um, an oat milk drink called Oatly. And there are some interesting uh, banner ads that they've done. There's some, quite a few interesting ads that they've done outside, you know, billboard ads. And the, the, the tone of voice is actually quite edgy. It's quite sarcastic. And you might actually look at some of these adverts and think, gosh, um, I'm not really sure I, I like that. But that's okay, because if you don't like it, it's perhaps that you're not the target market for them. But they certainly do stand out from everybody else. And he even uses another example of The Economist magazine, believe it or not. And if you actually look at quite a lot of the communications they've been doing over the last couple of years, they genuinely do have a, a, a different tone of voice. So the rest of the article is really sort of saying here's how you can start thinking about this again and how you can start to change the way you come across, the way you speak. And, and, he, and, and he's giving tips on how to move away from that blandness. And, and I think one of the examples he sort of says is, you know, a lot of brands will say, well, you know, we're that helpful friend or we're your, your buddy in the airline industry or we're your buddy in the marketing consultancy. And, and again, it's bland. If you want to tone a voice, you've got, actually got to define it right down to detail. So if you want to be that helpful friend, you've got to decide, are you man or woman? Are you from New York or New Orleans or London or Edinburgh? How old are you? What's your sense of humor? What do you, what are your clothes? What, what do you, what music do you like? What food do you like? and actually build it as if it genuinely is a real person. Because if you want to be that trusted friend, you've got to have 
a trusted friend persona. Um, and it sound, maybe it sounds a little bit fluffy, but you can't have a tone of voice if you just have a very vague outline of what you're trying to do. And another one is, I think, I think I've come across this particular idea before as well, is if you are trying to define a tone of voice based upon named characters that can help you so the example he came up with here is a, is a gourmet grocery store again in america and they they've defined their tone of voice as dr seuss meets dr frazier kane and again they that, that that's reflected in their communications and they stand out as a result of that and then the final one the third one is if you do have to come up with a list of of words please don't go for the friendly optimistic professional who doesn't want to be those those are taken as read those are taken as read come up with something different like the aforementioned oakley which are irrelevant if sorry irreverent playful and sarcastic crikey i said irrelevant there that was a mistake irreverent playful and sarcastic and and just try to be a little bit different don't try to be clear friendly and genuine try to find something a little bit different a little bit edgy so very short article and as always with a lot of these short articles that i come up with it just really does make you think pascal it really does make you think and you know i listening to you i'm realizing that when i think about my work as a consultant and trainer over the years people are asking me less and less about that voice about capturing you know who they are and it's all about the social media and everything else the content creation the video the live streaming and so on and i think that could probably it could be a casualty you know we can't do everything at the same time we can't remember everything but certainly you and i can cast our mind back to a few decades ago where that would be part of the brand guidelines yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, as you know, I, I still do quite a bit of work with companies in financial services. And, you know, some of the questions I ask them, you know, describe your brand, and they'll always say professional, approachable, friendly. And I'm saying, no, 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 everybody should be professional, approachable, and friendly. That doesn't set you apart. If those are your brand you know, assets, then you're the same as everybody else. You've got to find something that you can use to stand out. And, and I think you're right. We're all being forced into this friendly, professional, approachable, which is a bit bit meh, to be honest. Just to close on that, the I recently helped a client select a web design agency. So via Zoom calls, we, we had the pitch. And with, with three or four companies and during that meeting, they all express the same ideas, the same way using the same kind of expected jargons that uh, you could just imagine. And by the end of the presentation, my client was saying, is it always like this? And I said, uh, well, sadly, maybe, yeah. but, but here we are. What happened particularly in the world of digital marketing and digital content creation and more, there are some phrases and and kind of verbs almost and nouns that are just adopted. You know, they, they become very trendy. So it's all about customer engagements. It's about conversion rates. It's about uh, pivoting. It's about blowing up on social media. It's about going, you know, you've, you can just imagine those sentences over and over again. And the problem is when you have the back-to-back -back meetings as we had that day, it became so obvious that by the third and fourth meeting, 
you actually think less of the organization despite best effort to concentrate on their the presentation and their the, you know kind of project management style and, and so on you kind of go i've heard this said the same way already why can't you find a different way to go about it and particularly for my client it was such a turn off I was able to kind of navigate it through, but by the by the fourth one, you can imagine, he was saying, I don't think I can work with any of those because they all do the same thing the same way, or suddenly it is expressed in that manner. So not only is your article an important reminder about working on your brand voice, but actually in meeting situations and more, can you avoid, you know, those kind of now established phrases and sentences because it's becoming such a cliche that it's a turnoff for the non-experts and, and your future customers. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. I went for long form content, Roger, this week, a very long form, but I don't want people to be turned off by this because I think it's going to be a fascinating article for you to read. It's in Fast Company, written by Mark Wilson, and the title is The Rise of Canva, the $40 billion design juggernaut. This was presented to me by my kind of news curating platform, Flipboard. And it made me realize, actually, I know so little about Canva, despite the fact, like many others, we are big fans. I mean, you and I have mentioned it a few times on marketing tech and apps. There's not a training course I don't mention Canva. It's still not known by everybody. But I realized that you could try and challenge me uh, on any kind of pub quiz on Google and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I can give you the names of the founders and, and the people leading it. But Canva, I realized, hang on a minute. I know so little. So I went in and read the article. So to begin with, always looking for learning points, you know me. Fast Company, the way it's laid out, the way they have an audio version. And also, I must compliment Mark Wilson with his kind of uh, writing style. It's such a great story to follow so we can learn from that. But I learned in a process that the founders of Canva are called Melanie Perkins and Cliff Obricht, if that's how you pronounce it. And they're about to celebrate their 10-year anniversary. I just didn't realize it'd been that long. Um, they now, at the time of, of this article being written, they have over 75 million monthly active users across the world. They produce, on average, 150 designs per second. And the company is designed, as you had a moment to know from the title, at $40 billion. And they're going to keep increasing the revenue uh, over time. And the article essentially is reflecting on, on the journey um, from early beginnings when you know the, the two founders spotted a problem, spotted an opportunity, the trials and tribulations of raising finance and moving diff to different parts of the world to try and pitch the ideas and so on. And it's just kind of interesting because for many businesses out there, including agencies, Canva has become such an important part of um, your day-to-day you same way we are reliant on Google and Facebook and WordPress and so on. I think it makes sense that you should be just interested. So I'm just going to give you some top-level bits of information from the article, but I would encourage everyone to just have a read, and you'll see for yourself that, A, it's a great story. They deserve all the success that, that they got to, and they have plans for, for the future. So the first thing that was interesting for me, it was that they spotted a problem based on almost their day-to-day jobs. So Mandy Perkins was, was a tutor, I think for memory, um, Cliff was working in academia, and the challenge of using you know, the usual Microsoft Office with everything that comes with it. 
and trying to do something visual was tricky, but people liked the um, the familiarity of the dashboard and, and so on and so forth. But what they also saw is that on social media, there was more and more apps and platforms making life easier for you to be super creative. But unfortunately, it wasn't something you could share. So they observed the... Um, I suppose, you know, the desire to keep it simple, a la Microsoft Office, but the wish to be very creative without any design background, a la Instagram, and they brought those two things together. And it wasn't easy. They even had um, an, an early attempt at creating what they call Fusion Books, which was an online yearbook design. And they were happy to kind of um, keep it going, but then there was the spark. There was a moment to say, I think we can do more. We can, we can take it further. And they make that step forward into Silicon Valley and more. What is interesting, and the the author, Mark Wilson, used that sentence which I want to read out to you, is um, um, with while many unicorns pivot again and again to find their market, Canva's proposition today is remarkably similar to that pitch of more than a decade ago. So point number one, once you have a vision, once you, you claim, you make your claim about how and what you can do for people, just stay the course and don't fall for that, you know, whatever trends or what your power will tell you. And then know their, their, their space. You now, this is about design with a little D, you know, with a capital D. They are aware that, obviously, designers uh, don't think much of Canva. I mean, I think people are saying, how can you call yourself a designer if you use Canva? But what they're saying is it's, it's all about speed and it's all about it being intuitive or removing all frictions. Because ultimately, whilst designers may complain, Roger, about Canva, the kind of work that they don't like to do, Canva can do for them. So what you can do, as um, many friends of the show, you know, I'm thinking about Nikki Paschke, I'm thinking of Emmy Woods or Claire Jenks, what you can do as a professional is set up the templates and your clients can self-serve and not essentially disturb you with minor, minor requests. One strategy that was pointed out by the article is what they call the um, bottom-up design strategy, which is the idea of woo the masses with simple templates at home, and they will eventually bring it to the office. And 10 years later, they literally have people like Zoom, Marriott Hotel, Salesforce, Warner Music Group, and PayPal using Canva for their own needs in marketing, which I think is um, is very, very telling. And that's really what I want to encourage people to do is to discover more about the very entity that is Canva that is making such a difference to your business. And you will learn a few things that will be a surprise to you. I, um, I'm intrigued, actually, because I'm exactly like you. I probably use Canva at least once a day. Um, quite a few of my clients, I use Canva to create quick visuals for them. And I also use them for marketing and finance podcast etc and for my my youtube channel Um, but i'm exactly like you i know about the background of um, twitter and facebook and who owns it and how much it's worth and this that and the other and how it started but i know so little about canva i wonder why (laughs) why has this particular platform which let's face it a lot of us use day in day out why have we never learned more about it that's intriguing very intriguing. That could be a decision from the founders not to have a high profile, mm. or maybe it was just the speed at which um, you know we, we adopted it. I mean, one thing that I'm thinking, why do I know so much about the other platforms? Well, actually, I'm going to go back to the conferences. Every year, I will watch online the many conferences from the different platforms, including Microsoft. Um, maybe it is time for Canva to have their own summit. Maybe that's the absolutely the answer to the to the issue 
Okay, well, thanks very much again, Roger, for your selection today. You know, I think once again, we choose those uh, th- those um, pieces of content as a source of inspiration, but also for you to take action. So I think on this one, I'm sure Roger would agree, please go back to disco- rediscovering your brand voice and just spend a moment to either read or listen to this great article about the history of Canva. Shall we move on actually for more marketing tech and apps? So Roger, what have you found that could make life easier for us content marketers and business owners? Okay, Pascal, I'm going to continue with the theme that I introduced last week, which was travel. Now, we're all getting back to traveling a little bit more now, although we have seen some quite uh, scary photos of long queues at airports and this, that, and the other. But last week I was talking about you know, scenarios where you're doing a bit of business travel and you have to connect through airports. And we came up with some great apps which will help you in that respect. So the the trend continues this week. And I'm thinking now of a scenario, and it has happened to me a few times, where maybe I've been staying in London or Manchester or Birmingham or something like that, and I've stayed the night, I've got a hotel, and I've got an early meeting that maybe finishes it's a breakfast meeting I go in about nine eight thirty goes on till ten o'clock eleven o'clock and then that's the end of the uh, meeting so of course I'll have checked out of my hotel before I go to the meeting because usually checkout times around about 10 a.m isn't it so you check out before you go to the meeting and then I might find depending upon where I am the flight home isn't until later in the afternoon or early evening. What am I going to do for the rest of the day? Now, last week I suggested, well, actually, you could use this app to go and sit in an airport lounge for a couple of hours and do some work. Well, if you fancied a little bit more luxury than an airport lounge, there is now a website called dayuse.co.uk. In fact, dayuse.com also exists as well. The .co.uk is the UK version, obviously, but it is international. And this will find hotels in your local area that actually let you take a room during the day. So I could finish my meeting at 10 o'clock or half 10 or 11, whatever it is, and go along to a hotel, check in at 12 p.m. and stay until about four o'clock. I could either have a sleep or I could do some work, whatever it might be. And then I feel refreshed and ready to go to the airport for my next flight. And presumably the uh, hotel will then clean the room and rent it out for the full night. So somebody, so there, there are, it's obviously a win-win situation for the hotel as well. And then the second one effectively just evolved from that because of course now we don't just look at hotels, do we? We've now look at Airbnb and the equivalents, you know, um, a lot of the uh, booking.com actually do apartments and, uh, and and Airbnb style accommodations as well. And once again, we find there are so many different websites all offering slightly different things. And finally, somebody has come up with a consolidator website to actually scan not only hotels, but also the Airbnb style accommodations as well be it airbnb or booking.com whatever and this is this website has got a fabulous name it's called cozycozy.com <laughs> i'm going to say that again because i love it cozycozy.com and and actually pascal I, i've it's a bit of a um uh, a black hole this one i i literally found myself just 
looking at all these different accommodations in Edinburgh and London and uh, Barcelona. Just and, and it sucks you in because you've got such a variety. You've got the hotels, both high-end hotels and, and ones to down to one star, but you've also got all the Airbnb-style accommodations from rooms in people's houses to you know fully equipped flats. It, it's actually quite fascinating. So if you are going to on business or even on holiday cozy cozy is a great website to check out because it does a consolidation across all of the different accommodation styles this is stunning and once again fuels the argument of a supplement of the marketing taken app just about traveling because you've done so much research there must be about now at least 20 or 30 apps you've looked at for the past year and a half so yeah, absolutely i've been having conversations a lot about content repurposing lately for my own kind of video series and uh, as well as for my clients. I've been on a bit of a quest for something that could make life easier in terms of creating short video extracts. And there's a few that we've mentioned on marketing tech and apps, but I think it's something that was a fraction faster than what we've mentioned to date. And I came across something called gifs.com, G-I-F-S.com. Now, as I would indicate, it really began life, I believe, in creating gifs, so this animated looped video. But they now have the option for you to do a short video extract where you actually leave the sound, original sound, and you don't actually have anything getting in the way. Now, I must confess, I foolishly wanted to do a test with the Two Geeks and Marketing podcast, but the video was far, far too long. I mean, it's about nine and, and ten minutes for usually. So instead, I went for something shorter, which was the trailer for season two of Picard. Why <laughs> well, wouldn't you? And using that as a bit of a um, gimmick, I was able to literally do 30-second, 60-second extract, download them, and they become shareable content for social media. So... Give it a go, everyone. If you if you are creating content and it could be a few minutes and you want to give your audience teasers who could be 15 seconds and a bit longer, gifts.com will work for you. Of course, you could also create you know actual gifts. The, the other one found me probably because of the infamous algorithm, Roger. Tinywow.com. Tinywow.com is a portal that literally gives you a dashboard to convert anything into everything. Let me explain. If you have a written article, it can be converted into a PDF, an infographic. And so if you have a PDF, it could become a video. If you have a video, it could become an audio. It literally analyzes what is the original format and give you a selection of different file format. But the beauty of it is that it's one view, it's one dashboard, and you don't have to change you know, apps and go to different websites and so on. I mean, just looking at what is possible, like you, I was getting myself lost in, oh, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know that you could go from PDF to Excel. I didn't know you could go from Excel to video and all those kind of crazy things. So um, congratulations to the team behind TinyWow for compiling this incredible resource and portal because for all of us out there, it's going to save a lot of time and that's what we're looking for, particularly in terms of content repurposing, is both the inspiration to do so, but also the speed and the efficiency that we actually uh, praise the moment to go Canva for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is just superb, isn't it? I mean, I've often wanted to convert one file to a different format, and sometimes you end up spending a long time downloading expensive software that helps you do that. And right here is something so easy and so convenient. No, absolutely. Thank you very much, Roger. And as we've said many a time before, this is possible thanks to the vision and hard work of pioneers from the recent and distant past. Let's move on to this week in history. 
1934, the Daily Mail publishes the first photo of the head and neck of the Loch Ness Monster. This iconic photo was taken by Robert Kenneth Wilson whilst on a fishing trip and was sold to the Daily Mail for £100. While in 1964, the first picture phone call was made between New York City and Anaheim, California. The device consisted of a telephone headset and a small TV screen. Callers could see and hear each other in fuzzy video images. <laughs> in 1977, Annie Hall, directed by Woody Allen and starring Woody Allen and Diane Keaton, was released. And it wow. was also the Academy Award Best Picture for 1978. And in 1985, Steve Jobs is asked to step down as head of the Macintosh division by John Scully, the then CEO. With the backing of the company's board, Steve Jobs is stripped of nearly all responsibilities at Apple. Ooh. What a harsh they world. What they were doing, did they? <laughs> <laughs> Can I take you back to the very first item, the Loch Ness Monster? I mean, I believed it. I mean, for a very, very long time, I, I believed it. And, of course, we learned, I think, was it 20 years ago, that finally the truth came out, that it was all very, very clever hoax? Ah, I'm disappointed. I didn't know that. I still hold out hope that there genuinely is something in Loch Ness, you know, a plesiosaurus or something that survived for millions and millions of years. I just I just think that it would be so good if it turned out to be true. I agree. I mean, I mean, listen, uh, there, there was scientists onto it. There was obviously not um, you know, kind of monster hunters. Uh, Jacques Cousteau went in there with um, sonars and, and radars to try and find, you know, whether it was possible and so on. But uh, I'm told that, I think it was about 20 years ago, they discovered some some journals from actually the friend of Robert Kenneth Wilson that was there with him, who basically wrote down that they had a good life creating this uh, this prop that they put on the lake. Ah, yeah. I mean, let, let's face it, there's been so many films, documentaries, articles, books written about the Loch Ness Monster, hasn't there? And it's, you know, it, it has become part of not only urban mythology, and history, it's, it's become the subject of, of many, many films. You know, Doctor Who did an episode about the Loch Ness Monster, right. and there's been all sorts of um, crossovers to different um, science fiction series and films. And for, for me, I'm sure the tourism industry has enjoyed, you know, obviously the reputation. Um, so the Loch Ness is, is it right? It's stretched from, is it from Inverness all the way to... I've got to place it in, in my mind eye in terms of where it is. Yeah, it's sort of Inverness quite quite a long way down. I mean, it's a big lake. It's big. That's why it was so hard, and that's led to, obviously, the, the main speculation that there was plenty of um, places for the monster to hide. Um, so so there we are. Um, you know, fascinating that, um, you know, that, that has happened. I think, I don't know whether £100 was a lot of money in 1934, but I would have asked for more myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you might think I chose Annie Hall as one of my pieces of news this week. And, and actually, it's a bit unremarkable, isn't it? It's a Woody Allen film. I actually quite like Woody Allen, um, mainly comedies, aren't they, that he's, he's done over the years. He's a pretty good director as well. But the reason I chose Annie Hall is just it's just in case this ever comes up in a pub quiz, because in, I don't know whether you've seen Annie Hall, um, but in Annie Hall, Woody Allen's character lives in a house which is actually underneath a roller coaster. It's a house built on the turnaround of a 
big wooden roller coaster on Coney Island. And in the film, every time they're talking and they're having conversations, you know, every two minutes or so, they hear this clattering rattle as the roller coaster goes ahead and the whole house shakes. And it's it's part of the running gag of the film that how could anybody be stupid enough to live in a, ho- in a, in a house underneath a roller coaster? And, and it's just part of the gag of the film. And as you would expect, because I grew up in Blackpool, um, where there's Blackpool Pleasure Beach, has a lot of these very old style wooden roller coasters, some of which are you know, built nearly 100 years ago. It, te- it did prompt me to go and have a look. Now, was this a film set that they built for Annie Hall or not? And it actually turns out, believe it or not, that this building that they used for the house that Woody Allen lived in was actually a hotel called the Kensington Hotel, which was actually built underneath the turnaround of the Thunderbolt roller coaster. Now, the Thunderbolt roller coaster was built, wait for it, in 1925. And this hotel was in this roller coaster's turnaround from 1925 all the way up to 1977 when they made the film. So somebody actually lived in that house for all those years before Woody Allen actually got the idea to turn it into a bit of a gag in one of his films. And I just think that's absolutely gorgeous. And sadly, the Thunderbolt was eventually demolished in the early 2000s. I think it just basically fell apart. It was uh, it was made of wood and it just, it just fell apart. And the, but they have built a modern new roller coaster, which is also called the Thunderbolt now, which is made of steel and will probably last for a lot longer. But there's no hotel under this one. Ah, uh, so good. This is all about truth being revealed today, you know, and yeah. how things are working out. Uh, this is so good. Thanks very much for the selection. And very, very quickly, sparing a thought for the fact that in 1964, the very first video form, which led to probably what we can do today, which is to work on Zoom or contact each other on WhatsApp video or Messenger. Just remarkable, isn't it? Absolutely incredible. Okay, let's get back into the present now with the creator's shout-outs. Now, I always look forward to this segment. So who is under the spotlight for you this week, Roger? Okay, a little bit of background first, Pascal. I actually think I've shouted out Daryl Ziegler before on uh, Two Geeks and Marketing Podcast. He's actually appeared on the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Daryl is an advocate for using mobile phones as video cameras for content creators. And all I'm going to do this week is point to one of his posts because I think it, it, it points a very clear lesson that people still refuse to learn. Now, I have conversations with people, and as I'm sure you do, about building more video into their marketing. And I do find that the bigger the corporate that you talk to, the more, I don't know what the word is, I was going to say snobbery, maybe I'll stick with that, snobbery about video equipment now the bigger the company if you make the suggestion that they should let their staff create video using a mobile phone they would hold their hands up in absolute horror as if that is there's just something bad from a quality point of view it's just never going to work and what they'll do is they'll go out and either buy an eye-wateringly expensive camera of their own and use that to film it or they'll hire an agency with gigantic cameras and um, silver discs and, and best boys and this that and the other 
Daryl keeps coming back to the fact that if you're working to a budget, there's absolutely nothing wrong with a mobile phone. Otherwise, okay, you might not get that depth of field that a camera with a massive lens and a massive aperture uh, will give you, but a mobile phone is really good quality. And in this little post that he's put on LinkedIn, he actually posts now the guidelines that Netflix have put up on their page saying that they are accepting films and TV programs that have been shot on an iPhone 12 or 13. And if you want to submit a program to um, to Netflix that's been shot on a mobile phone, here are the guidelines. And that's all the post does. It's from Netflix and it says, shoot it in 4K, Use Filmic Pro as the uh, as the app, which is interesting. That could be a. Uh, I think I've I've done a shout out for Filmic Pro in the in the uh, in the past. It's a great mobile phone app, and set the quality to extreme. And obviously, things you would expect like using a tripod, using external microphone, and things like that. But I thought it was just it was just worth picking up on Daryl's post here because finally surely we can abolish all of this snobbery that still exists in some quarters that if you're going to do video you've got to have a gigantic massive camera with all the um, accoutrements on it if it's relevant you can get a really good high quality 4k image from a mobile phone so no excuses just get out there and start filming it fantastic and i love the idea of using almost netflix as your kind of wingman to say listen if you don't mm-hmm. believe me surely you're going to believe this platform who's pretty much you know the most successful streaming service on the planet so that's wonderful but very much like you this is a return for me in terms of the shout out i wanted to kind of give phil palin another shout out on the show personal brand strategies but also the author of multiple guides and free resources so i got an email from Phil about a couple of weeks ago. I must confess, I really like his email marketing. It's very thoughtful, it's full of ideas, wrestles of inspiration and so on. But I'd forgotten somehow that you also does guides. So I was um, sent an email with a link to a guide entitled 100 Words to Describe Your Brand, which is actually quite interesting. Bear in mind your selection today on the content spotlights. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. What else has he got? And my goodness, he's been a busy guy. So everybody, if you really want to get a bit of um, kick of the day, yeah, as they say where I come from, or just a nudge in the right direction, I would highly recommend Phil Palin's freebies on his website. So in addition to the one I've described a moment ago, Roger, you've got 100 evergreen content ideas you could post today. Discover your brand archetype worksheet. Nine quick tips to make your brand better immediately. Branding checklist for your new business. Identify your target market with precision and improve your email marketing game instantly. And there's a few more in there as well. And what I will say is for people that are always hesitant to part with their email address and contact details, Phil will look after you well. I wouldn't say this lightly on this show, you understand, Roger. I receive the content myself. I find it inspiring and so will you. I just love the fact that we just have to remind everybody we don't collaborate in advance over our selections for this show and i just love the fact that sometimes we we almost know what each other's doing and it creates that theme going through the show so great selection pascal i know it's just also very strange talking of selection you have selected a stunning film it is time to move on to film marketing and solve a murder 
Today we're talking about Death on the Nile, actually a movie that's had an eventful kind of production and promotion journey because of COVID. Um, we're going to start actually by watching the original trailer from 2020. The romance of the desert has the power to seduce. I ask you. Have you ever loved so much? Been so possessed by jealousy? That you might kill. You had something to hide. The crime is murder. Should have hidden it, shouldn't you? The murderer is one of you. I don't feel safe here. I don't feel safe with any of them. It's too late to change events. It's time to face the consequences. I have investigated many crimes, but this has altered the shape of my soul. I am Detective Hercule Poirot, and I will deliver your killer. Wow. Well, I saw this movie a week ago, Roger. Yeah, same here. <laughs> really? And yeah. what an experience. We'll, we'll go into the details in a moment, but just very quickly. Stunning, loved all the characters. They, they, they did a superb job. And yes, I would argue that in a way the marketing campaign cleverly kept a lot from the audience. You know, there's no spoilers as such, is there? No, absolutely right. And, and you know, the marketing campaign, as we'll see, um, focused in on quite a lot on the ensemble cast. You know, a lot of the social media activity that they put into this film was showcasing the characters and showcasing the locations and showcasing the absolutely glorious colour palette that they used in this film. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. They gave very, very little away. What must be frustrating for filmmakers is to be in a situation where you work very, very hard to build on the success of the Murder on the Orient Express. You have aspiration to release a movie late 2019, you know, early 2020, and then it keeps being pushed and pushed. I mean, very much like um, No Time to Die. And in the process, things start to get a little difficult with regard to the promotion. Yeah, I mean... You, 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 you can imagine the sort of conversations he must have had. I mean, this film has been pushed back, rescheduled very, very many times, obviously from the point of view of the pandemic. But I think the first time it was pushed back was actually a production issue, wasn't it? They, they were behind in production or, or, or something. And so it was pushed back, um, originally set to be released in December 2019. And 
it was pushed further back after that. And then, of course, the pandemic started, which caused it to be pushed back because of the the lockdowns across the world. And then they were hit um, with all sorts of other potential issues surrounding some controversial stuff happening with some of the stars of the film. Um, you know, um, it was alleged that uh, some of the stars of the film were, were sort of anti-vaxxers, and that created quite a lot of um, negative publicity. So they decided to hold back on launching the film until that died down. So you can almost think that maybe they were getting to the point where they were going to wonder whether they were ever going to get this film released until finally, finally, that it came out towards the end of February. Yeah, yeah. Year. And and what, what, what's um, interesting f- for me and you and I, you know, I would have wished to have been a fly on the wall because what kind of meetings and conversations are they actually quite familiar with the highs and lows and the trials and tribulations of film promotions so it wasn't particularly stressful or was it actually very frustrating because like all of us in business you had the stop and start you know that there was times where restrictions were lifted and they came back on then there was red amber greens it, it would have been just impossible and actually because of the lack of traveling to try and organize a premiere you know in 2020 2021 and even today is very difficult yeah and and and, and let's face it when you've got a film like this which has got a whole plethora of big stars you know it's an ensemble cast so there's loads of people involved i imagine the logistics of getting them all together for a premiere must have been horrendous so you've done the research on on this one and for me what has been fascinating to observe is the very clear adoption of of a style of mm-hmm. a color palette but also leaning on the art deco of that kind of 1920s 30s era yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I, it's a long time since a movie's colours and design have blown me away. And yeah, Art Deco, again, I really love that sort of style. Ironically, I mentioned roller coasters before. Uh, Blackpool Pleasure Beach, which I mentioned, which is where I was growing up, a lot of the buildings in there in Blackpool Pleasure Beach are Art Deco. So I grew up loving that style. There's another little uh, side. Do you know, what I love about this whole thing is the depth of the colour palette. I mean, it's gorgeous, isn't it? It's, it's really warm and brown and golden. But even the 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 logo of Death on the Nile, the actual types typeface, is utter genius in the way that they've simply dropped the crossbar from the A so that, of course, it looks like a pyramid. I mean, it's delightfully, ridiculously simple, but immediately you know it's about um, Egypt. It's well, just fabulous. I would agree. And so you have that kind of, I'm going to say, sunset. It feels like it's a sunset that has been captured and that kind of gold and rich orange. And for you and I, that's obviously the golden hour as well, where you can mm-hmm. get the best. And for those of you who have not seen Death on the Nile, you could be forgiven to think, oh, here we go again. This kind of ensemble cast is going to be the who's who of Hollywood and, and the UK. Uh, I, w- I will remind you that that's exactly how films used to be made, including the original one from 1978 with Peter Ustinov. And that is not the distraction. I will say credit to Kenneth Branagh. He gets such quality performance from everybody, including the one that had a few um, eyebrows being raised, Russell Brand. Yeah, absolutely. And you know the the original um, tweet that went out to start the campaign 
was so far, so long ago now, the 1st of October 2019, um, that tweet that went out is simply a photograph, uh, is, uh, is a graphic of, with the Death on the Nile logo at the top, and then in a pyramid shape with Hercule Poirot, Kenneth Branagh at the top, and then underneath a growing number of um, stars to create that pyramid shape immediately tells you it's an ensemble cast, immediately gives you that um, variety of actors and actresses from across the world, the variety, the diversity. And it's an absolutely gorgeous graphic. Even from the very first tweet, you knew the quality of what you were going to get here. The, then at this, pretty much at the same time, we revealed the um, the teaser poster with still you know the date of October 2020. I mean, my heart just goes goes to them. So they have repeated this gorgeous title using those five fine line from the Art Deco. You've got the the list of of the actors in the smoke of of that Karnak kind of uh, ship, and but nothing is given away. I was even being a bit nerdy. I must confess, and was zooming into the poster, Roger, to see there was any, any little hints as we've seen in in other films. I was thinking, oh, I wonder if the uh, the smoke coming out of the uh, the steamboat is shaped like a skull. But of course, that would be a bit too cheesy for something as classy as Death on the Nile. Or maybe you were f- zooming in on the photograph of the cabins to see whether you could spot somebody with a knife in their hand or something like that. No, so, so it feels to me that there was two campaigns. There was the, the, the first attempt at releasing the movie, then they had to backtrack, and then they had a second attempt. I think the gain, obviously, from there in terms of the execution on, on social media, but that meant that they had to cut a second trailer. Yeah, they had to cut a second trailer. Um, and effectively, they th- there was a year between the two campaigns, effectively, wasn't there? Um, and and I, I guess that um, even though the film was pushed back a few times, there was this period of time where there was a whole year and there was a bit of controversy. So Army Hammer, who was one of the um, stars of the film, uh, got mixed up with um, accusations of cannibalism and sexual abuse i don't want to go into the details of that i don't think it's it's really um appropriate for the for the content of the show but of course it it creates a backlash doesn't it and and it puts a spot a negative spotlight unfortunately on the production on top of that uh gal gadot who is uh, one of the the um, stars of the film appeared in a video early in the lockdown which didn't go down very well at all they did a version of um, john lennon's imagine uh but i think it, i think the tone was a bit off and that created a lot of controversy as well and then there were reports that Wright and Russell Brand were ardent anti-vaxxers and that created a load of controversy as well and so I, I just I think the marketing guys just thought you know what we are going to keep quiet yeah. until all of this dies down and then once we have a firm date, we're going to effectively reboot the campaign, and uh, and that that's when we get that second trailer. And effectively, the second campaign didn't start until December 2021. One thing I did want to just quickly mention was that as part of the first campaign, um, once they delayed the film beyond the original launch date, which was, as you say, in October, that pushed it into... November for obviously, and they tied into the Movember. Do you know that 
that hashtag Movember thing. I do indeed, yes. Year, where men are encouraged to grow moustaches. Well, nobody could grow a moustache as incredibly um, big and uh, fluffy as Hercule Poirot's moustache in a month. But I thought the tie-in there, and again on social media, was absolutely gorgeous. So, so what did you think of the second trailer? I didn't like it as much as the first one, Roger. Mm-hmm. And I've been wondering, mm-hmm. I've been asking myself, why Why is that? And I think because I thought to hear the voice of Hercule Poirot as, as a narrator in the first one was so enthralling and, and took me back to a, the, the time that this is meant to be the 1930s, but also took me back into my whole life, like everybody else around the world, I've loved the character of Hercule Poirot, no matter the, 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 the actors. And I suddenly, it felt like he was absent from the whole thing. And mm-hmm. artificially, I think he gave more prominence to the music track. Is it Depeche Mode? I mean, you're the uh, music connoisseur of, of uh, the show here. But so certainly the, the music track that was actually thought was a, a very clever became just the one thing I could hear across the trailer. Yeah, I want to pick up on the music a little bit later, but maybe we'll carry on through mm. the campaign. Um, obviously, after the second trailer, it was then that they followed with a absolutely gorgeous selection of individual character posters, which they put out again across social media. I think the social media focus for this campaign is notable, isn't it? They really did make a big deal of their Twitter account. Obviously, um, at dot dot n movie uh, d o t n movie death on the Nile movie was their Twitter handle, but they really did push everything out through Twitter. And these character posters, or ca- they almost look like character cards, again have that beautiful colour palette, the costumes, the atmosphere, you know, images of the boat in the background. Absolutely, you you could actually imagine you could. Cr- collect a series of almost like playing cards based upon these they're absolutely gorgeous i think your reference to playing cards probably right because 1930s people would be collecting baseball cards and and all the form of hero cards for me back to what you were saying i loved across the whole social media the use of depth i mean this is one style but they explore so many different styles where with text and characters and backdrop you had the sense of three dimensions there it reminded me of the front cover of a book, you know, which I think makes sense. Bear in mind that this is an adaptation of Agatha Christie's book. I felt that I would pick this up on the shelf. Yeah, absolutely. It does yeah? You, you're absolutely right. It does look like a a, a cover of a, of a book, doesn't it? And one thing, another thing they did, which I've not come across before, although I'm sure it, it does happen, is the posters for the individual cinema chains. Now, the Regal Cinema chain got their own um, ensemble cast poster. Again, a full cast poster with images of all of the characters. And again, it's absolutely gorgeous. And, you know, I'm sitting here looking at it and thinking, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen characters appearing in this poster. And, of course, you've got the pyramids and the sphinx in the background, which arguably is a character of its own, isn't it? The setting, Egypt, is a character it's just that beautiful backdrop. So all of the different cinemas, including IMAX, Odeon, Regal, they all got their own posters. And again, the the, the imagery is stunning. I think that's a very important point because I would have given, uh, including streaming services, so Hulu and Disney Plus, they had their own artwork. It would give the you know their own kind of internal marketing teams the um, 
you know, they, they desire to promote it because it's not just a the same artwork as everybody else and plonk your logo here. It was yeah. unique to you. And I think as a result yeah. to which you're more likely to be active on social media. Yeah. And, and of course, after that, there were all sorts of TV spots, featurettes, the full cast, um, suspects. There was a close-up look at the costumes. That was one of the featurettes, a look at the costumes. And again, you know, the costumes are absolutely gorgeous of the period. There was even a featurette, Pascal, about the cocktails of the era. <laughs> uh, because, of course, they're drinking cocktails on this boat, uh, the Karnak going down the Nile. And there was a featurette. About it. it just gets you sucked into the period. It gets you sucked into the time, the atmosphere of the time and the costumes and the tastes and the visuals of the time i think this is one film more than any recently that really does make you feel as if you're actually there and ironically because of the um pandemic they couldn't actually film this in egypt i think actually the original intention was to film it in morocco if i if i read rightly but in the end they filmed all of it in the uk so all the backdrops that you see all the scenery was either CGI or had been um, filmed separately and dropped in. And and you can tell a few times that it's not actually accurate, but most of the time, you know, it, it's convincing enough. And I actually felt as if I was there in that in that film. It doesn't distract. For me, it was part of the charm of the movie because of the, the, mm -hmm. the colour palette. It reminded me a bit of what would have, they would have done if they'd filmed this in the 30s and 40s, which is to have a painted backdrop lit with massive projectors and actors would be in front of it. So I, I just felt it was part of the um, the magic and the, the, the charm of, of the movie. You're right, you yeah. can tell, but it, it just blends in. It belongs to the whole experience of that film. And it feels to me that we won't be able to do justice to the social media campaigns and how clever it is. You know, they use different sizes. They went back to different character profiles, using different styles, different videos, using copy that was in front of the characters, sometimes was behind the characters. They even did some very old-fashioned styles of videos where you know the character turns slowly towards the camera and smiles which is kind of almost very very cheesy you don't do that anymore but actually they did yeah. do that in the 40s and 50s when they were making movies you have a whole range of recapturing almost classic cinema and of course the era of the 1930s yeah and i guess that you know this the social media campaign to me was was really good and the imagery that you used in the social media campaign was really good but i think unfortunately because of those controversies because of those uh hiccups that were going on with the with some of the cast um some of the other members of the cast it would appear didn't actually participate in the social media campaign as perhaps they they should have done or would have done had there not been that controversy and therefore perhaps the reach of the campaign didn't go quite as far as the filmmakers had hoped because on the whole the film hasn't been deemed to be a success pascal despite the beautiful wow. marketing campaign that's gone with it you know they spent 18 million dollars on the marketing campaign and yet all the feedback that i've read is that they feel that the marketing campaign was was a bit of a failure. It's a shame. One thing I'm remembering as I'm listening to you is in this particular uh, a good episode, because you had a murder on the Orient Express uh, a few years prior, is how we explore the character of the Hercule Poirot and mm. how we explore essentially his inner demons. And uh, there's a 
chapter at the very beginning filmed in black yeah. and white, which I think kind of interesting because I wonder whether there was inspiration to do Belfast in black and white as well, where we see Hercule Poirot as a soldier during the First World War, everything that comes with it, and how that led to his slightly obsessive behaviour, but also his keen um, kind of detective mind. For me now, it feels as though the marketing campaign runs parallel to the movie as we are, so it's to be experienced. So watch the movie first, then enjoy what they've done on social media, and then go back to the movie. I don't think it's going to be the strong lead generation and audience building campaign that they were hoping for, because there's just not enough time between the announcements and the go-live date on screen and streaming. Yeah. Now, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and you've already alluded to this, Pascal, is the music. <clears throat> in the film now ironically uh just before i started doing the notes to this film to, to the to this episode um we were watching the netflix series bridgerton i don't know whether you've come across that um, which again is set in regency uk so we're, you know we're talking um <clears throat> 1600s that sort of thing and there was this scene in a ballroom, and they're all dancing, they've all got the costumes, you know, it's as gorgeous as Death on the Nile. And all of a sudden, this little orchestra in the background, which are, of course, playing violins, harps, and harpsichords, start playing a Madonna song. It was Material Girl. And it just felt, oh my goodness, I'm thinking, this is set in the 1600s, and here's Material Girl by uh, Madonna coming on, albeit played by contemporary for the time instruments so obviously it didn't have the disco beat and all of that sort of thing and throughout Bridgerton I started noticing modern songs played in the style of the time there was a Jesse J song as well um called Wrecking Ball which I, I noticed now they've done this in Death on the Nile um I mean in fact if you go back to the other film, Murder on the Orient Express, there was a, 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 a track by a group called Imagine Dragons called Believer, which was heavily um, played during Death on the Nile. And in, sorry, in Murder on the Orient Express and in Death on the Nile, as you've said, Depeche Mode synthesizer heavy 1990 single, Policy of Truth, was used extensively throughout. Now, on the one hand, you think, well, that's a bit stupid, isn't it? They're using music which was it was um, anachronistic, but then on the other side of the coin, was that a subtle way of getting a younger audience to watch a film which maybe a younger audience might looked at the character cards and thought, you know, this is an older person's film. I'm not going to. I'm not going to watch this. But they then watch the trailer, hear Depeche Mode in the background, and think, oh, actually, I might give that a go. What do you think? It's an interesting one. I, I don't find it offensive in the trailer, although, like I said, I prefer the first one where there's that, you know, it's more about Hercule Poirot than, than the song, because I'm sure, like, the, the filmmakers, you, you couldn't believe your luck when you listen to the words from that song. You know, it matches perfectly. I would be very unhappy if it had been part of the film experience, the way mm. you describe Bridgerton. I think that's just a heavy-handed direction in my view, but then what do mm. I know? My surprise from a marketing point of view is that they didn't use actually the amazing songs from Sister Rodita Tharp that we hear <laughs> in the movie played by, you know, obviously, um, 
the character of Salome Autoburn. I mean, the godmother of R&B and electric blues, I mean, those songs and the way they are, you know, um, kind of performed with the electric guitar and the, and the singing and the dancing and so on, it's part of the experience of the movie and capture the era so, so well. And I'm certainly at a loss to understand why they wouldn't even do some short clips on social media or even introduce it as part of the, the, the marketing. It was almost as they, they wanted to keep it a secret so that people would be just surprised, delighted to hear the song obviously performed so, so well. Yeah, and I admit, you know, one of the early scenes in the film, um, we, we're not we're not going to give away any of the uh, plot points. But one of the earliest scenes in the film takes place in a music hall, and there's a dance sequence set to this person singing, and it's really quite sensual. Mm. And again, the atmosphere is incredible. Uh, so yeah, I can I, I, I like you. I think they could have made more of that in the marketing. Talking of what they could have made more of, I mean, it's easy for you and I to, in a comfort of our kind of, you know, podcasting chairs to be critical, but I'm thinking, ah, oh, you know, one again, it could be time issue, but they did a great job in, on occasion, sharing uh, fan art. Uh, I saw that on, on social media. I wonder if there was a chance for them to actually do something with So In No Time To Die, which is to get a brand or a partnership with, with an established brand to get more fan art to be sent and shared and maybe to get some, some winners. I mean, they did do also a very good job, which I thought was very – I was surprised because I'm thinking – as a brand, the um, distribution company and the producers, they must be very busy. But when people were tweeting themselves, going to the cinema, dressed, obviously, as they tried to do so, following the advice from sort of dressed as they could in 1930s style, that was retweeted by the official Death on the Nile social network, which I thought was brilliant. Yeah, I love that interactivity. That's great. And the fact that somebody would want to dress up in 1930s stuff in Art Deco st style to go to the cinema is just glorious, isn't it? It's really get it's, it's like going to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show and dressing up in stockings and suspenders, I guess. So back to your point earlier about the filmmakers perhaps are disappointed by the box office, you know, the, the takings as they will call it for the first few weeks. I've got a strong feeling this movie is going to do very well for the remainder of this calendar year, and we're going to see people talking about it more we're going to see more activities on social media we're going to see more fan art we're going to see i wouldn't be surprised to see people even doing watch parties dressed you know as some of the characters and and putting things on on twitter so it could be one of those kind of successes where when they look back a year later i think that they'll be very pleased with um, the impact this movie is having yeah absolutely and and the the 4k blu-ray will be an absolute must purchase I mean, uh, to see this in in that crystal clear quality will be uh, something I will be buying straight away. Do you know, it's a movie that I could happily watch once a year, like many others. It feels that kind of movie. Uh, and mm. even if you know the 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 the, the end, I mean, because I remember the storyline from the nineteen seventy eight. Um, version with Peter Houston of I kind of knew the story and I knew who was guilty but I didn't spot it at all because once again what you see on screen is filmed in such an impeccable way and the storyline it delivered in such a wonderful way that um, yeah once a year it's definitely on my list no I absolutely agree with you you know it doesn't ruin the film for you that you know who the perpetrator is um, and 
I, I was going to tell a story there, but if I tell the story, I'll give away who the perpetrator is, so I won't <laughs> tell that story. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll talk about that offline in the green room, Pascal. <laughs> we will. I came across a lovely article just to wrap up on this great marketing review. Thank you for doing the research, Roger. I came across uh, an article, someone who studied the, the film and says there are many, many, many triangle, triangular symbols across the movie to be picked up so worth watching it a second time do you remember the scene when actually um Hercule Poirot is in the jazz bar and he's ordered some food and is delivered those food into little dishes and he organized them into mm. a triangular shape do you remember that little scene yes yes very clever that's one of the many, many little kind of nods and hints at the pyramid throughout the film. So I'm going to watch it again now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everyone. This was episode 74 of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and watching Roger and I going through the wonders of the world of marketing. Can I ask you to get in touch with us through SpeakPipe as well as the social networks, leave your messages, make suggestions, make contribution to the show. That would be just wonderful for us. Until the next one, go out there and make sure your marketing is done right. I was Pascal Fintoni and he was Roger Edwards. Mm -hmm.